Are you ready to cry on uh, cry on cue? <laughs> Welcome to an emotionally devastated edition of It's Del Toro Time. <laughs> it's a sad movie. <laughs> Do you deny it? <laughs> Looking at Ollie and Ollie is wrecked. <laughs> R-E-K apostrophe T wrecked. <laughs> Are you are you without do you need to get a drink of water or something? Do you need to go to the bathroom? I mean, I need, obviously you don't need to go to the bathroom. That's not what crying usually means. I think I have to go to the bathroom. Unless you're like a three year old and you're like spending the entire day at the park. I have seen I did see a play once where I was in the front row, it was an outdoor play, and I drank an entire bottle of iced tea at the beginning of the play. It was a midsummer night's dream. Why would you do it that? It had no intermission. And by the end of the play, it was a short version of it. By the end of the play, I had to pee so bad that I really thought I was just going to lose control of my bladder, like in the audience. And I couldn't leave though because I was in the front row, like of like two rows. It was a very small production. And the only way to get to the bathroom was if outdoor production, the bathroom was across the stage. So I would have had to have like walked through the production. Hey, I just got to go pee real quick because I drank an entire bottle of iced tea. I bought the iced tea. From the concession stand. It was their own fault. You didn't have to drink the whole bottle. I was really th- It was an outdoor production. It was like in August. Oh, well, then, yeah. It was so hot. It was, And it was on a parking lot. Like, it was on cement. So we're on cement. It's like 95 degrees outside. No shade. Of course I'm drinking an iced tea. It was so delicious. And then I had to pee it all away. I remember... The play ended, and I walked up to the people, and I was like, it was a really good job. And then I ran off and, like, peed forever. I think I'm still peeing in that bathroom right now. I had to pee so bad. Uh, do you enjoy my stories about peeing? Do you have any to share? I have one about you to share. Do you have, you have an, a me peeing story? Remember when we went to the movie theater, yes. and you ordered a large soda? Yes. How and it was it? the size of the bucket. <laughs> And? And you drank the entire thing. And? And had to pee so bad at the end of the movie. I do. Nowadays, I actually will just leave and go to the bathroom in the middle of the movie. Like, I used to not want to do that. That was, like, such a big deal for me. I was like, I will not miss that. Now I'm just like, I have to pee. I have to pee. I have to pee. I have to pee. I'll read the Wikipedia entry and find out what I missed. Or just ask me. What I miss. Yeah, because when you have to run out of the theater to go pee... It usually feels like it takes like 15 minutes, but it's usually like 45 seconds and you're done. Too many breadsticks. Did you eat too many breadsticks? Oh, we just ate so much bread. It's disgusting. We <laughs> We're are, not even talking about the movie. We ate bread. We watched Pants, Pants Labyrinth, Labyrinth and we are recording this episode full of bread. Yeah, I really don't feel that well. <laughs> It's Del Toro time. I'm Phil. And I'm Ollie. And oh boy, are we wrecked with a capital R. It is a nightmare in here. We just watched Pan's Labyrinth from 2006. So wow, this movie is 11 years old. Well, not quite 11 years old. 10 years old. 10 and a half years old at this point. Like, not like me. I like 15 like and a half years old. 10 and a half years old, just like you. <laughs> First I was 12, now I'm 10 and a half. We don't know how old Ali is anymore. You're ageless, you're timeless, you're like Kronos. <laughs> um, but, oh boy. Uh, Pan's Labyrinth. Like what, I mean, we only have a certain amount of time to talk about this movie and you cannot cover everything about this movie in, in uh, it's such a, it's, wow, what a movie. My eyes sting. Yeah, why do your eyes sting? Because I've been crying for like five minutes. This movie is a gut punch, like over and over and over again. Do you agree? Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's like, he was like, I mean, it's often been called like a companion piece to the devil's backbone. Like, it's basically like, let's take the devil's backbone and... Make it worse. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, he was like, I don't think I got my point across with the devil's backbone. Let's really hammer home some of these finer points but also like 
in a, in a lot of ways, it's very different from The Devil's Backbone. It's a lot more... It has a lot less to do with war in general and, like... Well, I guess maybe, like, The Devil's Backbone was very specifically about the Spanish Civil War. And this one is more about... Well, the Spanish Civil War ended. Yes. Like, this one takes place, like, right after it, when the fascists are in charge. And it's more about, like, what happens... What a fascism does to people and to the planet and to... So take notes, people. <laughs> We're going to talk about fascism, fawns, and fun. No, scratch the last <laughs> but one. But not much the fun. Because <laughs> this is all about paganism and uh, the effect that human beings have on the planet and the effect the planet has, has on human beings. The and effect that human beings have on children. And innocence and innocence lost and innocence retained, I guess, because she doesn't lose her innocence. It has to do with authority and parenthood and magic and magic and like the the line between fantasy and reality uh it has magical creatures and magical objects it has a giant frog and fables and yeah three three beat structures and uh and brutal brutal visceral violence probably one of the most brutal Ooh, it also has joker scars you want to know how I got these scars? <laughs> I was a general in the Spanish Civil War. No, really, I was. He only gets the one scar, though. Yeah. And I, in my memory, it was always that he got the uh, the two scars. But I guess that would make much sense. You'd have to like. He's not the Joker. We'll get to those scars. We'll get to. Oh my God! Like the from the moment that guy gets his face beat in with a bottle, you know you're just. From the moment they step out of the car. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so um. Pan's Labyrinth, 2006. This is the movie he did right after Hellboy, and... It could be anything to... <laughs> According to Del Toro, it was originally a much more brutal and dark film. <laughs> you can see Ollie's gave me this look like I just, like, stepped out of a cow mouth and, like, danced around the room. <laughs> no, uh, Del Toro said this was originally a much darker movie. It was about a pregnant woman who, like, gave her baby up to the fall. Like, it was... It was like she had to make she made much darker decisions. So imagine this movie with less like light and <laughs> fun. There's that word again. I told you we get back to fun. Um, it's uh, it won all kinds of awards. It was held up as just like this is it. This is a quintessential, the quintessential Del Toro film. But it's it's when I first saw it, I saw it in the theater at a sneak preview with. My mom? No. Oh. <laughs> I mean, that would make sense, but no, it wouldn't make sense. Um, That's why I was on. confused. No, with uh, with Doug Jones. I didn't see it with Doug Jones, but he was there. In the theater you were at? Yes. It was a special screening uh, in town with Doug Jones in attendance, and he spoke afterwards. Like, he gave this, I think he introduced the movie, and then there was this big Q&A uh, at the end with Doug Jones, he talked about his career and stuff. And that's when Why I. Why first... would I have known you had seen it with Doug Jones? Because I've mentioned it to you like ten years ago, maybe like, a long time ago. <laughs> I was like, hey, no, um, yeah, Doug Jones was there, the lanky man, the lanky man, the pale man, the fawn, fish man, Abe Sapien, and the cockroach, cockroach, Judas bug, the Judas bug himself. Um, yeah, he was there, and he talked about the making of the movie. He mostly talked about his own career um, and Hellboy and such, but. It was, that was where I was like, this guy is extremely genuine and extremely kind and just a great talker and just a raconteur. Because when you have a career in Hollywood where no one really knows who you are, but you're in a lot of things, you sort of get this freedom to tell stories. Like a lot of celebrities can't tell stories because their careers are on the line. But Doug Jones is like, what are you going to do? Not hire me? Like no one else can do what I do. And I'm not like a big celeb. So he was able to like, he's able to tell stories. Um, but this isn't all about Doug Jones. I wish it was. Don't you? Don't you just? This is about Guillermo del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth. What is this movie? What? I don't want to talk about <laughs> it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I'll get us started. This is a movie takes place, like you said, uh, post-Spanish Civil War. Franco is completely in control. The fascists have won. Um, we are, whereas Devil's Backbone took place in like sort of an enclave of the resistance. Um, this takes place within the, like in the camp of one of the generals of the fascists. Um, and it's so 
any good people are now in the lion's den. Like you're surrounded by evil in this movie. And it's, these characters are pretty evil. Like, um, as far as like human beings go, uh, we've got, but it, the, the, the story is about a child, a little girl named Ophelia who is, have you seen a picture of the actress now? She's so pretty. Well, yeah, she's like, I think she was like 11 or so when this was made. So what is it like? 11 years later it's 10 years later yeah she's an adult now but she's so pretty i bet she is her name is uh ivana baquero and uh she was i think yeah i think this was like her first movie um but then she came along or at least the role was written for a younger actor and then she came along and they were just like you're perfect and she looks like an illustration like not to reduce her because she's very good not to reduce her down to like her appearance but just from a from a cinematic perspective you see her and she looks like she stepped out of a storybook um but yeah so she and her mom go to stay live at this like enclave yeah her mom's pregnant yeah and why'd they move there uh because the captain was like hey i want a son should be born where the father is so the mother has remarried yeah this captain this evil captain. His name is Captain Vidal. We don't quite know he's evil yet. Right, right. But you get... But then there's a line that the mom says, he's been so good to us, and you know mm-hmm. he's evil. <laughs> <laughs> you pointed that out. You're like, as soon as someone says he's been so good to us, you know this is going to go anywhere. Yeah. Uh, so they the, the mom is pregnant. She's visibly pregnant. And, yeah, she's like nine months. Yeah. And there's a doctor who lives with this... This is like... It's all the soldiers. I don't know what you call this. It's called a... I'm, I'm the worst at words... So uh, they are on a uh, what's the term? A camp. Yeah, it's like their camp. Like their. But it's like a permanent camp. Their base, I guess. Like where he is the captain, and all the troops are there. They're Not at a, an old mill. It, that's right. That's right. It's an old mill, which I guess they've taken and like are using to secure this place. But there's a uh, guerrilla fighters in the woods. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's this. So the resistance is still going on. Yeah. Um, people are not happy with the new fascist regime in Spain or if the guerrillas aren't. So there's guerrillas in the woods. And so I guess he's there. His men are there to like ferret these people out, this resistance out. That makes sense. Okay. Mm-hmm. The mother has come to live there. And the doctor who is on who's, who's at the camp says like, you shouldn't have brought her like you shouldn't have brought her all the way out here. Yeah. Especially this late in her pregnancy. Yeah. Yeah. It's really close to the baby's birth and she's not doing well. And, uh, and he's like, no, 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 my son will be born by me. And, and the doctor's like, how do you know it's a dude? And you're like, I don't think that was a smart thing to ask. <laughs> like, I don't see the, uh, the the captain. Captain Vidal is a fascinating character. He's, he's uh, so crazy. He's so nuts, but not in a very like dramatic way. He's very it, it, you watch him. It's not that he gets crazier throughout the movie. It's just that you it reveals as things as his control slips on the situation you start seeing more and more sides of his like nastiness you start seeing more and more sides of his nastiness he's a he's a he's a pretty piece of work like early on in the movie they capture uh the the troops capture two people out in the woods who insist they were just hunting rabbits a father and his son son is like in his 20s the father is older and uh he uh finds a bottle of wine or mm -hmm. whatever in their bag and he beats the son to death in front of his father with the bottle of wine but not in any like traditional way. He smashes the kid's face in. He doesn't beat him to death because the kid oh, doesn't right. die. He smashes the kid's face in like a pu- like it's putty, like with the butt end of the bottle. And uh, the kid is still alive. That's right. He shoots the father and he shoots the kid. And then come to find out they were just hunting rabbits in the woods. And that's the first moment, like really the first moment in the movie that Del Toro shows you that a he's not going to pull the camera away from the violence like you don't expect to see that face get smashed in and it gets smashed in i left um yeah it's something it's like hard it's very difficult to watch um but you know that del toro is not going to pull the camera away and that violence and death in this movie is going to be quick and brutal and unfair like this is he's not flinching from like the this movie is a strong critique of fascism and but not in a not in a luxury way it just shows you fascism and shows you its effects it's horrific to watch at times but also beautiful to watch at times 
don't worry. The ending is beautiful. And he gets what he deserves. Uh, yeah, I won't, but I will not say everyone gets what they deserve. Oh, no, no. Um, so this little girl, Ophelia, she's like 11 years old. She's come to come with her mother to stay in this place. And she's brought books with her. She's bookish. She's kind and wide-eyed. And she immediately finds a, a rock. A rock in the woods that is an eye. Mm-hmm. And she's like, hey, what the heck is this? And she finds then a, a, a monolith, like a... Mm-hmm. Like a statue. Yeah. One of her flaws in the movie is curiosity. Right. There she's, is very, this... she's very much a Pandora-esque character. Mm-hmm. She, uh, yeah, she, she doesn't question her impulses. She just does them. Uh, I mean, there's... There's moments... But I was going to say, there's like, there's a, you don't want to like put any of the onus of the, anything that happens in the story on her. But, no. But there's that question of like, if she hadn't pursued all this stuff, what would have happened? Probably nothing good. Like. She would still. Yeah. She doesn't cause bad things to happen. No. Um, it's completely everyone else's fault. fault. Um, so she finds this statue in the woods as an ancient looking, like, it's not like a, like a Greek statue. It's like just a, a, like a, like a monolith, like mm-hmm. a, a shape. But with a carving of a face, and she and the eye came out of it. And yeah. She puts it in the the eye. She fixes it. Out of the mouth comes this bug. It's like a praying mantis esque. Yeah. Flying bug. Right, right. And she like immediately just gloms onto the idea that this thing's a fairy because it has like kind of fairyish wings. But it's 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 clearly an insect. It is a bug. Right. It follows her though. Um. Oh, because they stop in the middle of the woods. Because the mother's. Because the mother gets sick, and that's when she. Yeah. Finds the eye. But then they make it to the camp. That's where she meets the captain. The captain and the mom's the like, time. call him father. He's been so good to us. Yeah. And you find out there's some sketchy stuff going on just with her, the fact that they met like her husband. Ophelia's father was a tailor uh-huh. who made the captain's uniforms. The ca- This is all told later on. The captain, the father dies in the war, in the war. And the captain like kind of moves in on her but when this gets brought up at a dinner party he gets really like shuts that conversation down and i'm wondering what the implication is supposed to be like did he have something to do with the father's death you seem to think so well i mean like come on he's crazy and he he wanted a kid so bad i guess like you you really get the sense that this guy is a bit of a sociopath like I don't think he can love anyone. I think he sees everything as a means to an end. Uh, he's not a flawed, like a dam. He's not a damaged soul. He's just almost empty. I'm nodding. Yes. <laughs> yeah. He's a. It, he's brilliantly played. Like uh, oh, yeah. the actor who plays him, um, Sergei Lopez, is just wow. He just pitch perfect and. There's. I read an article that talks about this movie about how like we're used to seeing movies that in Hollywood produces stories that are about. At the end of the day, what we think of what, what is capitalism, like our form of government, our form of self-government, is the end-all, be-all. And no matter how far you back and go, everything gets framed as a sort of capitalistic idea. Yeah. This movie is about fascism, which means it is necessarily a critique of capitalism because of the way fascism insinuates itself. And it's very anti-communist, anti-socialist. And uh, the movie basically sets up that nature is by its own, by its own, uh, well, nature <laughs> is, is, is necessarily more socialist, more, uh, more, doesn't care about one person advancing over another. It's all about you know, it doesn't. It it needs to balance itself out, right? And uh, and so this movie is it sticks out like it's a weird. It gives, it produces a weird feeling because it doesn't feel like a Hollywood film. It doesn't feel like a Hollywood blockbuster, it, even though it has elements of fantasy that we're familiar with. It you're not really sure at the end who's won because yeah, if the the bad guy dies, but you know, like what does this mean? And I think you have to see it through a lens of like there is no winning or losing. there's no winning or losing nature continues on like we are 
our our business is ultimately very small compared to the 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 the, the concern of nature or the concern of fairy and its own kingdom and like yeah if if fairy represents if the fawn represents the natural world let's talk about this fawn let's talk about this fawn so there is a giant labyrinth connected to this is it giant i think it's because like it seems like there's an entrance a path down the entrance and then there's this center and there's stairs you walk down i guess that's true a labyrinth isn't a maze a labyrinth is traditionally is a maze is a type of labyrinth a maze is a labyrinth you can get lost in but you're not supposed to be able to get lost in labyrinths yeah because they are more meditative than than tricky Mm-hmm. So yeah, I guess you're right. Like it's not huge. It's like, it's tall. It's very tall and ornate and old. Like it's made out of old stone and covered in moss. Yeah, like I think the labyrinth, like the idea of a labyrinth is that there's like there a maze is like there's an entrance and then there's an exit mm-hmm. on the other side. But a labyrinth is there is a center. A center. Thank you. Yes. That's the that's the the thing and people like the Minotaur's labyrinth. They're, right. The center where the Minotaur is kept, except for that labyrinth, you are meant to get lost in. Right, because it's a trap. But uh, like traditionally, like, I think a labyrinth is supposed to lead you to the center. Like that's where it'll take you. And whether or not there's something nice in the center uh, is up to whoever built the labyrinth, I guess. But at the center of this labyrinth, there's a staircase that goes down. Mm-hmm. And at the bottom of that staircase is a rock. Yeah, like a like another like monolithic yeah. rock. I, there's, and, there's a term I'm trying to think of, but I can't think of what it is for that type of rock. It's um, so can I just describe the basic? Setting? Yeah. Okay. So basically, when you walk down the stairs, it's like a spiral staircase that mm-hmm. just goes down into this pit of doom. Uh, that's what it looks like. And in the center of this pit, there's this spot in the ground that has like carvings and intricacies in it, like. Like it looks like a labyrinth, mm-hmm. and in the center of that is a giant stone carving. Yeah, I'm wondering if the labyrinth refers to the above labyrinth or the below labyrinth. So the movie is called The Fawn's Labyrinth. In English, it was translated to Pan's Labyrinth, but that's very deceptive because this is not Pan. No, this is a fawn. Like this is not a little goat boy. It's not a satyr. Yes, yeah, it's, it's not a, a fawn. It's a fawn, and it's a. Uh, far more sinister or tricky or can i yeah go ahead so basically uh fawns and satyrs are from greek and roman mythology um you can get confused into thinking they're the same creature they kind of are they're both part goat but that's kind of where the similarities end personality wise fawns are a lot more into not even just mischievous but like trickery like loki Mm. um and in Greek mythology, they're Dionysus's followers. They do parties and like drink wine. Um, Pan is the Greek god of nature, uh, also god of the fauns or satyrs, I should say. And he really has nothing to do with this movie. No, no, I I, I don't understand the reasoning behind calling it pan's labyrinth this is not pan like just give it a direct translation yeah the fawn's labyrinth i think would have been fine um but i think i don't know maybe just they thought people wouldn't understand what a fawn was does it how many people even know who pan is i was gonna say like to most people i think that would conjure up images of like peter pan yeah um who was based off of pan right and and it's and i think it's important i think that it's not maybe they said pan because pan was in midsummer's night's dream part of this movie depends on the fact that the stories of fauns and satyrs and that go back beyond the ancient Greeks and Romans, like the origins of those stories are lost, traditionally lost to the ages. And that there is a, there is a, like a, a, this isn't, this fawn isn't supposed to represent any particular branch of mythology so much as this is like the essence of that whole thing. Like this is fawn, like this is your, when you get right down to it, this is the 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 basis of all that. And I think that the thing about this particular fawn is, is that this is fawn. Yeah. Like that's its name. Fawn. Yeah. He's yeah. just a fawn, and he's tall. He he's is like so ten tall. feet tall. Um, he's played by Doug Jones, who's on stilts, making so he can like these special stilts, so he can have like the backwards facing legs, like goat legs. And he's not like when you see him, he looks austere and regal but when you hear him speak he talks like like a almost like a muppet like 
he's very, I, blah, blah, blah. he's speaking in Spanish. I can't speak Spanish, but he's got this very like, ah, like you're like, oh, this guy is creepy and not up to no good, but his motivations are murky. Like, so the idea is that the, uh, who is it? Like the, the king of the underworld, mm-hmm. the king of the underworld, uh, had a daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, this was all told at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. So basically the king of the underworld had a daughter, um, who dreamt of the human world of being able to see the sky and breathe the air. So one day she escaped and went up, but the sun blinded her and she forgot her memories and she lived and died as a human, but she was reborn. And so Ophelia gets down into the labyrinth and the Fawn's like, you have returned. Yeah. Yeah. And she's like, I don't know. And he's like, no, no, no. Trust me. You're this princess. You're the lost princess. Princess. Moana. Yeah, Princess Moana. <clears throat> I am Moana. That's not how the song goes. I don't no, know how it's a good goes. song. Um, but uh, so yeah, so she, he's like, if you want to live forever, if you want to like reclaim your position, you have to complete three tasks. And mm-hmm. we have this like nice like it be- suddenly becomes a fairy tale. Yeah, like she has three tasks. All your tasks are written in this book. Here's a book. Have fun. Here's some stones. Yep, and. It's this book that only uh, writing only appears in it when you need it to, like when it's. I wonder time. what would happen if somebody else wrote in it. Probably just hard to write on it. Like it's that kind of paper that, like, you try to write on with a pen and it like won't show up. Like you get a pen, you get to fill out a form or something, and it's like slick paper, and you're like, oh, "What God. is going on?" I bet it's that kind of paper, but like for everything. <laughs> but uh, so she finds out that uh, her first task is to go under a tree. And kill a frog yeah there's a frog so there's a frog squatting down by the roots of the tree but the story behind the tree is that it's this ancient fig tree that the creatures of the world above of nature all live under it together but one day a giant frog settled in it and the tree and wouldn't let the tree grow and provide nutrients yeah and so it started dying yeah it's this creepy old tree but we forgot to mention the fact that she got a new dress she did she got a beautiful new dress for dinner and uh, for like this dinner that's coming and up. And her mother is very trying to live her childhood through her daughter. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, the mother's sick and is in bed the entire movie. Mm-hmm. and uh, Or in a wheelchair. Or in a wheelchair. And because she, she gets to this place and she immediately gets ill. And uh, I would get ill if I went to that place too. Yeah. So she's, I don't think the, I think the mother, to me, it seems like the mother is just trying to get along with the captain, trying to keep everything on an even keel. Because I think the mother knows something's up with the captain. Yeah, I think the mother obviously knows that this is bad news. But, again, people in a bad situation doing the best they can with what little options, the few options they have. Um, she's trying to do the best, I believe, for her daughter. This is a good captain. He's high up, he's high up in the ranks. He's got probably going to have money when all this is said and done. They just got to make it through this. And she's giving him a child, hopefully a son, which will make him happy. And that's... You really want this guy to be happy. So she wear, She has this dress on. It's one of those situations where I'm like, just take off the dress. Don't go outside in the dress. She has this really nice dress on. She hangs it up on a tree branch, crawls underneath this not coincidentally womb-like tree. She crawls to this opening, goes under the tree. It's muddy, filthy. It's disgusting. Covered in bugs. These giant beetles are crawling all over her. And she finds this frog, this cartoon frog. <laughs> It's like a cartoon frog. But it's gross. It's this disgusting cartoon frog that uh, she lectures about being greedy and then offers to feed it some bugs, which is really these stones that the fawn gave her. Mm-hmm. The frog eats them. And what happens with Mr. Frog? What happens to our friend, the frog? I don't know. I turned away. The frog turns inside out, basically. Um, he vomits his entire insides, which is just like a big pink lumpy glump of clump. And it's covered in bugs. But within this the clump is a key a golden key that she she had to go retrieve like that was part of this thing she had to get the key out of the frog and uh she did it she gets back of course she's covered in mud she gets in a lot of it started raining yeah she's covered in mud the uh the the dress blew off the branches and got covered in mud she returns back she's filthy nothing really comes of that though like i I, the the times i've seen this i was like oh god she's gonna get in so much trouble but she doesn't like her mom gets upset at her her mom's like i'm so disappointed in you but not as much as he is and then she starts smiling yeah it's really this weird little moment like 
I think it, it sort of stems goes back to your observation that she's a kid and she's a little bit selfish or like doesn't really think about the impact of the things she's doing on other people. Um, we're not really selling the fact that this whole movie has this feeling of oppression. Like, oh yeah, you just you do not feel safe for any of these characters for any amount of time in this movie. Uh, it's it's nightmarish how tense this entire movie is. So you expect like people to get caught and punished like nonstop, and plenty of people do get caught. Oh, and we've already met Mercedes and punished. Yes, tell us about Mercedes. She's the best. She is the best character. Um, she's this, I think, maid uh-huh. or servant for the captain. Yeah, she's like the housekeeper. Yeah, she is in charge of all the other house Yes. people. Um, you may she, know her if you've seen the movie Itumama Tambien. You will know who the actress is. Um, she is kind of like a big sister or mother character throughout this movie. For a I will never watch Itumama Tambien with you, by the way. I don't know what that movie is. That would make us both extremely uncomfortable. So uncomfortable, you would probably throw up in your own lap. (laughs) What is it about? Trust me. There's a lot of naked. (laughs) Remember when we were watching the Paranormal Activity movie? It's far more than that. Oh, boy. (laughs) That's one of those movies that's just like, never going to watch this with my kids. Nope. I don't even know why I would... if. I accidentally rented it, and I was like, what's this? I heard this is a good movie. Let's watch Itamawa Tanfian. I heard it's cultural. And then, like, I would, like, I would tear off my own face <laughs> to keep from having to watch the rest of the movie with you. You can look it up yourself. I don't want to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in any case, she's very good in it. Like, it's an amazing movie. But she's very good in it. She's an amazing actress. Please go on with Mercedes. She's a wonderfully kind character. Yeah, she... um. She finds Ophelia after she gets covered in mud. She kind <clears> of <throat> takes care of Ophelia. Because mm-hmm. her mother can't. Yeah. And so uh, Mercedes is working with the doctor. Yeah. They're both helping the resistance. They're secretly helping the gorillas by supplying them with medicine and uh, food. Food and, and stuff. tobacco. Hey, got a lot of addicts out there. Got to tap that. Thing. And they're helping because one of the guy's leg is injured. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they need the, the 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 medicine for that. Yeah, and she's got a brother out there. Is yeah. her brother? Yeah. So there's there's uh, this is all going on under the captain's nose, and you part of what causes attention is you know that he suspects something. Like there's all this stuff with like the keys to the storehouse, and he he's shifty, but he's very paranoid about everything, as he should be. But uh, it makes it very uncomfortable to be around these characters. But Mercedes is a wonderful character. She's she's, she's who you wish. Uh, what's her face from Devil's Backbone had ended up being the uh, the young woman who gets stabbed by her boyfriend. I yeah, can't think of her name right now. But uh, she the, it's very similar character, like very motherly, very kind, but also like very strong and not not afraid to to stab a person when they need to. Um, so yeah, so she she gets this key from the frog. And uh, then she gets another job from the fawn. And what is that? It's a fun one. Make a magic door. Woo! It sounds like a fun thing. It sounds like a fun thing to make a magic door. So what does he give her to make the magic door? A piece of chalk. A piece of chalk? Well, that's even more fun because that's like a fun school supply. And where does this magic chalk take her? Someplace fun like Candyland or like some sort of like... No. (laughs) Green Gots Bank or... No. The magical world of... Where does it take her? To the pale man. Oh, who's that? Like some sort of like ice cream creature? No. <laughs> it's basically a mix between the rake and Slender Man. With eyes. On his hands. So he is an amazing creation. Don't forget to mention that the fawn didn't tell her anything about this creature. Okay, so the fawn tells her you have to go into this place. Whatever you do, don't eat anything you find on there and as we both know that's a common fairy tale trip. yeah like if you because what happens if you eat something well it, if you eat something in fairyland that usually means you're bound to fairyland yeah this is different or like you're bound to the underworld like in persephone's right exactly this is different this doesn't bind her anywhere it this does, kills her it does something far far worse so who this pale man is he just a pale man can i complain about the fawn again for a second yes so he's like don't eat anything 
she goes down obviously she's gonna eat something but he doesn't tell her oh yeah this is magic food that's going to entrance you and make it so you will literally do anything to eat it it doesn't come right out and say the food is magic but i have to believe you hear like a little ting ling when she sees the food and i have to believe that's the case because otherwise her ultimate tasting of the food doesn't make much sense she's very smart she is and twice because he tells her don't eat anything and then when the book gives her the instructions on how to get there it also says don't eat anything oh wait we forgot to mention something before this happened when she looks at the future first before this whole test she sees the womb oh right 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 this is like a little more clue into what's going on with her mother she looks in the book to see what's going on and it forms the shape of a a uterus. Like a uterus with red ink. Yeah, and then it starts bleeding, and she's like, what the hell is happening? And she goes out, and her mom's just, you know, bleeding all over the, the floor. floor. Yeah, her mom's like, basically, her womb explodes. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> She's hemorrhaging. She's hemorrhaging, but she's, at this point, she's still fine. The baby's still okay. Um, But she, the fawn comes into the room and is like, why didn't you do the task? And she's like, it's... Uh. Yeah. <laughs> and the fawn's like, put this mandrake root under your mom's bed. Right, so she gets a mandrake root, which is... It's kind of like in fairy tales and stuff. It's a root that is in the form of like a baby or a child. Um, like in Harry Potter, the roots that were used in the second book to cure the people of paral- par- paralysis. Yeah. Um, except for this one doesn't scream. In this <laughs> one, the plant dreamed of being human. And so she's told to put the magic root under her mother's bed in milk and give it two drops of blood every day. Yeah. And it'll keep her mom yeah. healthy, which it does. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of looks like a little baby. It kind of makes little baby noises. Um, but so she draws a door on her wall, a small door, and goes into the lair of the pale man, which is amazing and nightmarish. Uh-huh. Covered in paintings of him torturing and eating little babies, like woodcut type drawings. Yeah. Um, I love it because it sort of builds up. The pale man has this. You could have made a horror movie about the pale man. I'd watch it. But they didn't. And I think it's wise because like you're sort of left like this is a creature who's been around for ages and he's just sort of there doing his thing whenever he's called. Um, but he's sitting at a table covered in a, a banquet. He's white with like flaps of skin hanging off of him. But he's not moving. Oh, and he's he got, has these two. He's got nostrils and his no eyes. And his eyes are sitting on a plate in front of him. But there's no eye holes in his face. Yeah. And uh, she picks one of the eyes up. She picks one of the eyes up. I was always like, she should have just smashed them eyes. Like, if you'd smashed the eyes, she'd have been fine. Like, I guess she didn't know that at the time. Like, she was like, what is this? So there's three locks. The fairies, the fawn has sent three fairies with her to guide her. And the, the fairies show her which lock to unlock. But it's the wrong lock, which is weird. She knows it's the wrong lock. She's like, no. And she opens the one next to it and takes out a dagger. And then that's <laughs> it. Like, we don't ever know why she knows. I have a feeling it's because this is my theory. Okay. So we know she's the princess at this point. Like, it's kind of a thing. Um, my theory is that the princess had to do these trials to get out hmm. of the kingdom. And... So doing these trials again is bringing back some sort of memory. Interesting. Like, and like just something, just something like that. Yeah. Like, so this is sort of, like, sort of like a little, like a, like a racial memory, like from way back when she's like, no, 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 wait, I think it's this one. In any case, it is the right one. Like mm-hmm. she gets this dagger out. It's a beautiful gold dagger. And just as she's about to leave, she decides. Look at these grapes. I want to eat some grapes. <laughs> Literally me, though. They look like good grapes. They're like the size of golf balls. They're gigantic grapes. They are pretty good grapes. However, there's a frightening monster at the very end of the table. Like, I would just be like, just leave. Like, you could probably get grapes later. Like, I'm sure you'll find them somewhere else. She eats the grapes. The pale man wakes up. The fairies are like, oh, flapjacks. Yeah. He puts the eyes in the palms of his hands there's like eye slits in the palms of his hands and he holds his hands up in front of his face i'm sure if you just google pale man you can see he's holding the hands up where his eyes would be in his face and he starts chasing well first he kills two fairies yeah bites their little heads off he uh you see fairy guts yeah he totally uh, attack on titans them just bites them heads right off and uh, he does like it's very much like attack on titan like i have never seen attack on titan conch like just takes their heads off 
Um, she barely manages to escape. She just watches while all this happens. Yeah, she's just standing there watching him. Like, is that thing like, run, run now? Like, if she had run, he never even would have noticed her because he can't see her until, like, he puts his hands up. Uh, she's run out of time. She had this, like, uh, hourglass. hourglass about how long the door would last. She runs out of time. She has to draw another door in the ceiling. Um, Why can't she do it on the wall? I don't know why she doesn't do it on the wall. I mean, the chalk broke when it touched the wall, so maybe that has something to do, do with it. it. I don't know. She draws it in the ceiling, stands on a chair, gets back into her room. The pale man is still down there. Like, she just closes the door, and that's it. And you hear him pounding on the door for a while. Yeah. And so... There's one fairy left. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We forgot to mention the bug transformed into a fairy. Right, right. The bug she saw at the beginning ended up transforming into a fairy. Uh sort of like that was sort of our little bridge between the worlds Mm -hmm. and that's how we knew that like this stuff's about to get real um so she's done two tasks but she screwed this one up because she's like i'm sorry mr fawn i got two of your fairy friends killed and he's like you didn't listen to me he's like i told you not to eat anything and she's like well you didn't tell me there was a giant monster down there he's like you know what we're done we're done you're never going to become the princess now and he storms off and she's kind of devastated because this fawn is one of the only people she can really talk to. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, um, the doctor has visited the rebel camp and there's a guy who has a, who has a leg wound, a so. messed up leg. And, uh, Again, I left the room for this one and he has to amputate the guy's leg. And it's not a, it's not a, the, the, the scene itself ends up not being that graphic besides the leg wound. You don't actually see him amputate the leg. Um, I think you see him like do one, quick movement with the saw but uh you get to you get this moment with the guy whose leg's about to amputate it where he's like hold on hold on before you do it and he just looks at his leg for a second and then he's like okay go ahead and it's this beautiful little moment where basically the guy is just like just getting one last look at the fact that he has a leg and then the sawing happens but you don't see the sawing it, it cuts away to another scene um so there's a train explosion oh right and uh the the captain and his men go to investigate and they realize that it's just a diversion mm-hmm. and the uh the rebels blow up are actually attacking the compound yeah and they blow up a bunch of trucks yeah they they use the they use the train explosion as a diversion to go rob the supply house they come back they they the people come back they run into the woods mm-hmm and they chase them and then they shoot people right 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 so there's this big massacre and they uh they kill most of the people a lot of the a lot of the rebels but one of them was only shot in the leg right and they bring him back and torture him uh the captain again i left the room I left the room i remembered the torture actually being far worse than it is not that torture is anything to sneeze at but they don't actually show a whole lot they show him get hit in the face with a hammer and which is bad enough don't get me wrong it's bad enough <laughs> Uh, they leave most of it up to your imagination, though. He, uh, the captain, uh, Captain Vidal, has this spiel he gives when he's about to torture someone about how he's going to torture you anyway. He won't know you're telling the truth until he gets to like the third level of torture. So you're gonna be tortured no matter what you say. He'll only know you're telling the truth once he gets to like a certain implement. Um, he calls the doctor in though because. Patient's dying. The patient's dying. The torture victim is dying. Oh, and the torture victim, you get introduced to his character. Yeah, he's a stuttering character. And he's given, the uh, the captain says, I'll give you until the, if you can count to three without stuttering, I'll let you go. You have my word. And the guy tries to, but he stutters on three. Again, threes. It's a big thing in threes. There's three tasks that Ophelia has to perform. Three is the magic number to get out of being tortured. There's like, it's very, very fairy tale. He's very much a fairy tale ogre. Um, I I believe that if the guy had made it through three, I firmly believe, even though this is not very not true, in the trope of the story, he may have actually been let go. Like, because of the weirdness of the tale. Like, obviously, he didn't. It doesn't matter. But the captain is enough of a fairy tale character that it's like, like, would he have just let the guy go? But uh, the doctor, the, the guy who was tortured is... Obviously, the doctor knows him, and the guy's like, I talked. I, I gave up some information. You have to kill me now. I think because he knows I'm going to talk. I'm going to tell everything once this yeah. starts up again. Because the doctor is supposed to just get the guy back on his feet so they can continue. And so he... Uh, kills him. He kills him. He injects him with... Some sort of chemical. <laughs> yep. And kills him, and things start going from bad to, to worse. Bad news bears. Yep. Uh, because... They find out that the doctor euthanized 
this torture victim and the captain's not happy about that and he realizes that the doctor's uh anesthetic is in the same vial as anesthetic they found on the rebels earlier and that's when he puts two and two together that the doctor was the one supplying them with medicine and he kills the doctor yeah but first there's a really powerful scene with the doctor yeah and the doctor's like some people blindly fo- some people can't blindly follow orders like you yeah and then he walks out like he, a BA. He turns his back on the captain, walks off. The captain shoots him twice in the back, and the guy just keeps walking until he can't walk, and he pitches forward. It's an amazing death. It's the first, like, it's gripping how sad that death is. Unfortunately, it was the stupidest possible thing he could have done. Not the doctor. Right, the captain. The captain. Because <laughs> the captain finds the mandrake root under the bed. And he's like, what is this? And Ophelia's like, it's keeping my mother alive. The mother gets mad at Ophelia and throws the mandrake root into the fire where it screams, which is dumb. And then the mother immediately dies. Starts well, she starts having a massive abdominal pains. Unfortunately, they just shot the doctor. So they have to get the camp doctor to help, the camp medic to help. The mother dies giving birth, but the baby is born. And Ophelia is devastated. She has no one there to comfort her. And that she thinks this is it. Then the captain discovers that Mercedes has been working for the Revels. Because Mercedes. This whole time. Gets Ophelia and is like, we got to go. Yeah. Got to go. Oh, yeah. So she goes and she wakes Ophelia up in the middle of the night. And they head out. To go to the Revels. Right. Are they caught? Yes. yes. <laughs> in this amazing reveal where she has like an umbrella. She's talking to Ophelia. She moves the umbrella and like the whole army is standing there. <laughs> they get taken back. Ophelia shut up in her room. Mercedes is bound to be tortured. But. My favorite scene. <laughs> what happens? So throughout the movie, we've seen this twice. Um, she will be cutting potatoes, whatever uh, Mercedes will be. And she has this knife that she uses for that. But every time she's done with it, she tucks it into, like, the top of her apron. It's just something she does. Yeah. So when she gets captured, she just has this knife on her. Yeah. And it's not contrived because you know that she always has the knife on yeah. her. Yeah. Um, and she cuts herself out. Of While he's doing his torture spiel. Yes. And she stabs him in the back. Mm-hmm. And then she stabs him. In the front. And then she puts the knife. In his mouth. And, oh boy, <laughs> is this a hard scene. But it's so satisfying. She gives him half of a what is called a Glasgow smile. She cuts into his she cuts his cheek. And then him, she gets out. And then she gets the hell out. <laughs> and then there's that whole scene between the two army men who's like, wow, he just let her go. <laughs> <laughs> she she just walks out and the guys are like, Huh? What? They just he let you go? Like it's just like funny scene. She just keeps walking. And uh they're about to actually shoot her in the back. When the captain comes stumbling out covered in blood and is like, capture her, capture her. So they can't just kill her. And then she books it into the woods. And, and stops. Then she stops on a tree for like five five minutes. She does. She stops to rest, which you're like, no, don't rest. And they're coming behind her on horses. They chase her into a clearing. Uh, she holds her own knife to her throat. She's going to kill herself before she's taken captive. And there's this weird creepy scene with this other guy. Yeah, one of the captain's men is like advancing on her. He's like, I'll be the one to kill you. And then all heck breaks loose. And then he gets the one shot. He gets the one shot. He's the one who gets shot. Yep, the rebels are waiting. They shoot at the men. They kill a bunch of the captain's men. And like all of them. Yep. Res- all the good ones. They rescue Mercedes. And... Uh, Meanwhile, the fawn has returned. I'll give you one more chance. <laughs> and what's what is what is what does little Ophelia have to do? Bring your brother to the labyrinth. Yep. And she's like, "How am I gonna get the boy away? He's in the captain's quarters. The door is always locked. Make your own door." Yep. She still got this chalk. No, no, she doesn't have the chalk anymore. He gives her the chalk again. Oh, he gives it. That's right, because it broke. I guess he's just got a lot of that chalk. He's got a lot of the magic fawn chalk. Maybe it's like broken off from his horns. Maybe. Um, there's another book. Uh, ser- there's a book series called uh, the Night Watch series. Uh, and in Day Watch, the second book, I believe, there is a magic chalk from the land of fairy that will become a door if you draw with it. It's That's No, it. I'm wrong. It's not. It's magic chalk that whatever you write with will come true. That's what it is. You can rewrite reality. But the notion of 
chalk, which I think of as a relatively modern. That's in Buffy. Is it? Yeah, there's um a scene where somebody's trapped in a haunted house or something, and Willow draws chalk on the side of the uh, thing and says a spell, and the a door is created. I wonder what it is about magic chalk. Is it that chalk? Is it that chalk is by from its very essence like part of the earth? Like it's a it's a tool we use, but it is like the purest form of like writing implement because it's just dug out of the ground Mm -hmm. and it is the bones of dead sea creatures like it's the earth like it's the living earth in your hand like maybe that's part of the magic of chalk i think it's kind of cool like i think of chalk as like a school thing and also the impermanence of it yeah you wipe it away and it's just gone like you've created your magic and when you're done your magic is gone. I don't know. I just, I like the idea of magic chalk. Write me a report on the history of magic chalk. I will. That's okay. actually really fascinating. I want to look more into that now. <laughs> um, if any listeners know anything about the history of magic chalk, drop us a line on our Twitter account. Del Toro time. Um, <laughs> so in any case, she goes into his, she goes into the captain's quarters to get that baby. And while she's in there, her mother had this sleeping tincture that was given to her. Two drops to put you to sleep. She dumps that tincture into the captain's drink. Which he keeps he keeps drinking and the the drink keeps coming out of the slit on his face and soaking through his bandage and it's painful every time. But I guess it disinfects. Like you want you don't want that getting infected. Like he's smart. That's a good way to disinfect it too. Like you could just put rubbing alcohol on it, but that'd be disgusting. That would be like poisonous. And uh well it wouldn't kill him, like especially if he just put it on topically. But this is a good way to do it. Like it's going through, it's cleaning it out. It hurts like hell, but also, it tastes nice. Actually, tastes, I wouldn't know. Tastes nice for the man, and probably like calms him down a little bit. He needs some calming down. He's about to get some major <laughs> calming down, but not enough calming down. So she's gone to steal this baby, and meanwhile, the rebels and Mercedes are going to rescue her. Like they bust in to rescue her, and uh, she's not there. She's not there. <clears throat> she's stealing the baby. She gets caught by the captain trying to steal the baby. And she just like slowly walks away. Right, because he's tossed this drink down, which is loaded with sleeping tincture. And so he's like immediately just like stumbling. And he has his gun and he's going to kill Ophelia. And she's got his son, who you imagine is probably the only thing he actually cares about in this world. Um, and because there's this, there's this thing that he has a pocket watch that was his father's. Yeah. That stopped at the time. But it didn't stop. It's, it's still going. It's still going. ticking. Yeah. Yeah. But it stopped at the time that his father was killed. And his father's like, this is, I want my son to know when his father died because this is the only way a man should die. Right. There's a strong bond between fathers and sons through his line. And even though it doesn't make you sympathetic towards him, it rounds out his character a little bit. Like he's not just a monster. He's got this like motivation. To have but a he son, is a monster. But he's very much a monster. Um, so he starts chasing Ophelia, uh, who leads him into the labyrinth, into into the labyrinth of the fawn and she starts talking to the fawn yeah she gets to the middle she talks to the fawn and he, she's like here's the baby what am i doing with this child yeah and what does the fawn want to do well he tells her i just need the blood of the innocent to open the gate as she drop just one drop and he pulls out the giant golden <laughs> knife it's huge he's like oh, i just need a drop of blood and she's like uh no and he's like you're gonna give up your throne for this brat you don't even know very well and she's like Yes. And he's like, and he says something. He says something. He bows before her. He's like, my princess. He's like, yeah, my princess. And you're like, huh? And then just as he's bowing before her. She gets shot. She gets shot. Well, Vidal comes up behind her. She turns around. Mm -hmm. He takes the kid from her and then shoots her. And then shoots her. Point blank. Uh, In the gut. In the gut. The worst kind of shot. And she's just slowly bleeding out. She falls. She ble- starts bleeding out. Vidal takes the baby and walks back out of the... Labyrinth. Labyrinth. And all the rebels are there. All the rebels are waiting for him. <clears throat> In the most fitting end to a villain you could possibly imagine, he hands the baby over to Mercedes because he knows he's doomed. He says, this is my son. Tell him how his father died yep. and the time he died. And she goes, no. He won't even know your name. And he gets this look on his face of just like every possible emotion this guy could be feeling. Like not only has he lost, he's lost 
everything. Like his son will never know him. And that's like all he wanted. And it's so satisfying an ending for this character. He gets shot in the face by one of the rebels. By her brother. Oh, yeah, that's right. By her brother. And uh, then Mercedes goes through the labyrinth. She hands the brother off, the mm-hmm. baby off to her brother. Goes through the labyrinth to get Ophelia, finds Ophelia lying, bleeding out, and she yeah. starts crying. And then we get this fantasy sequence, which is Ophelia being reborn as the princess mm-hmm. in the kingdom, and her father's on the throne, and her mother's on a giant throne, and there's a throne for her. And the fawn is like, he did it. Like that was the, or her father says that was the final test. You spilled your blood instead of the blood of an innocent. Right. Like you are worthy of returning. You're a good person. And the mother on the throne is played by the same actress as. Yeah. As her mother. And, but then we cut back to her dying and she gets this like look on her face like, and then she dies. And Mercedes is singing the lullaby. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because it was a lullaby earlier on. The camera pulls out, and the narrator is like, there are signs that this actually happened around, if you know how to look for them. And, like, one is, like, you see flower blooming. On the tree where the frog was. Where the frog was. And uh, and that's the end of the movie. It's emotionally devastating ending to a movie. Strangely satisfying. Like, it would have seemed cheap if it hadn't ended this way. Like, it's, that's the story, and that's the way the story is told. Del Toro doesn't pull any punches. But the question you were asking through the whole movie was, was this real or not? Mm-hmm. Like, the, 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 the fantasy sequences. And what did you come to the conclusion of? I think it was real. <laughs> because the fantasy sequences had such an actual effect on the entirety of the characters, like, all of them, that there's no way that she could have imagined all of this happening plus like why would she imagine something that wanted to kill her well yeah there's like there's some hints like the fact that she had that chalk like because she leaves the chalk on on captain Vidal's and she desk. got into his room at some point she got she actually got into his room somehow um she got into the freaking pale man's domain we see the flower growing on the tree mm-hmm. um del toro has come out and said in in interviews that a it's open to interpretation however you want to interpret it is your interpretation he says that there are hints that it is true because basically of what you said like the way the 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 way the fairy tale interacts with reality mm-hmm. but uh but he said but he also said you know like it's obviously left ambiguous like yeah. how real it is because when she's talking to the fawn uh vidal comes up behind her and he doesn't see the fawn yeah so that's one of those things where you're like, oh, is she just like losing it? Like, I wouldn't be surprised. Or is but he just not allowed to see the fawn? I feel like that would be a more obvious. Like maybe only children can see the fawn. Right. The mother says at one point she asks, or does she ask Mercedes? She asks Mercedes. Do you believe in fairies? And Mercedes says, I did when I was a kid. And it's just one of those, yeah, maybe she's the only one pure enough to have. She is the Agent Myers of the story. <laughs> She's the only one feared hard enough to, uh, <laughs> um, but no. So we're left a little ambiguous as far as like what I personally feel to me, like whether or not it's real doesn't matter because that's not what the story is. Like the story is what you see mm-hmm. and it's more about the way the movie makes you feel and the way the movie tells the story of how there are older things than people like our influence, our influence doesn't matter a bit to the natural world yeah. at the end of the day. Like we can harm it and we can help it, but overall it is in, like, it is dispassionate as far as like we are concerned. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know, like watching it again today, was very eye-opening for me. It made a lot more sense than the last time I saw it. You can't go in expecting a traditional fantasy story. No. Because it doesn't play by the rules of a fantasy story. It plays by the rules of, like, old mythology. Like, a happy ending 
isn't in the books. Isn't in the cards. And it isn't guaranteed. And it isn't the point. Like, the point isn't that everyone dies happy or lives. It's, the point is, is that this is what's going to happen. And, and I don't care. And that the rules of the story are followed. Like, I don't know. There's It's deeper than that. It's... It actually, I was I was watching it this time, having just talked about Hellboy. Yeah, we recorded two episodes. In a row. Yeah, we're recording two episodes today. Um, having just watched Hellboy and talked about Hellboy, and now watching Pan's Labyrinth, Pan's Labyrinth feels more like a story out of Hellboy than the movie Hellboy does. It's because you're dealing with you're dealing with old mythology. You're dealing with creatures who are incredibly alien like they're not part of our world the pale man isn't part of this world funny side note del toro did say that the pale man in a recent interview is more uh is more uh relevant now than ever because he represents all that is evil in the world but there's a reason that he is pale and a man he represents like the greed and the uh, like, just the the unending evil that that white men can do on this world. And I feel like the pictures of the pale men torturing the children are very relevant in this world today as well. Yeah, because it isn't adults that are going to be dealing with what is left behind. Right. It is us. We're coming fresh off, not to bring this conversation down, but we're coming fresh off like recent Syria attacks in Syria. Yeah. Um, uh, where we were shown in detail the dead children uh, as a result of these attacks. And not to be so flip or trite as to like, this really informs my interpretation of a movie because ultimately movies and stories are... Small potatoes compared to what happens in reality. But I think that it's, it is, this is exactly what Del Toro is saying in these movies is that the machinations of, of, of leaders, particularly like uncaring leaders, particularly, but any leader, whenever a leader makes sweeping gestures that hurt hundreds of people. It is those children who are the like at the very bottom of the list of those who at any way should be affected by this. Like they made no decisions that led to this. They had no stake in this. They they weren't they had no horse in this race and they're the ones who pay. And I think the devil's backbone was about that about just the nightmare of war on children. I think that this is definitely a much more much more focused like one specific child, but how about you can run and follow the rules and obey everything and your blood, your innocent blood will still feed the ground. Like at the end of the day, like you're still not going to escape that. You're not going to escape the horrors. Like there's horrors below and there's horrors above. And I think that's what confused me when I first saw this movie was I was like, what, who are the, where's this, where is it safe? Like, cause traditionally it's, child is facing horrors escapes into a safe world and this is child is facing horrors escapes into a world of horror but i think that's i think it's a more mature look at fantasy which is fantasy isn't there to comfort us don't show this movie to your kids <laughs> it's, it's not a kid's movie <laughs> like the, even the box cover is like fantastical tree and like cartoony like lettering pens labyrinth you're like oh and you look at the back and it's like ooh, scary monsters this must be like Jim Henson's Labyrinth. Nope. No. <laughs> nope. Everyone's always like, "Oh, I was so scarred by watching." Nope. Nope. This is, this is one for the one for the books. <laughs> um, <sighs> but I think it's uh, I, I think it's it's brutally graphic. It's not for everyone. This is not Hellboy, which can be enjoyed by just lovers of action. This is not a movie that can be just enjoyed by lovers of fantasy. Um, this is a movie that you need someone to watch with <laughs> and if you are i would say that if you are the kind of person who is uh extremely negatively affected by scenes of, of graphic violence brutality against other people uh especially scenes of violence against pregnant women um war like anything like that just it, stay away just don't i wouldn't even i wouldn't even bother with it it's a it's a it can be a tough movie to watch 
Uh, I said while we're watching it, like every frame of this movie looks like a painting. Every frame of this movie is so beautifully shot that almost itself would bring tears to my eyes. Like how beautifully framed this is, how every character looks like they stepped out of a comic book or a storybook. Just it's so lush and gorgeous. And that's what makes the, the red of the blood stand out. It's what makes uh, uh, the violence happening because nature is beautiful in this movie. Like there's in dark and mysterious and dangerous and it's just being nature. Yeah. And like I said, it's the, yeah, exactly. Like it isn't trying to kill you. It can, but it's not trying to, it's humans who are trying to, it's the fascists who are trying to. And this, as this article I read was pointing out, like this movie, this movie is extremely anti-fascist and in order to make something anti-fascist, it doesn't fit comfortably in our Western, like traditional, like American storytelling because it doesn't celebrate like the leaders. It doesn't celebrate the 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 winners. It celebrates the the losers and, and not like in a judgmental way, losers. But I did want to say one thing. There's a quote by Del Toro here um, talking about the brutality of his movies. And he said that. Uh, and he says, it would be a cliche to say that because I am Mexican, I see death in a certain way, but I have seen more than my share of corpses, certainly more than the average first world guy. I worked for months next to a morgue that I had to go through to get to work. I've seen people being shot. I've had guns put to my head. I've seen people being burned alive, stabbed, decapitated, because Mexico is still a very violent place. So I do think that some of that element in my films comes from a Mexican sensibility. And I think that that's something, you watch a movie like Saving Private Ryan, which is ostensibly, which is about war, and you—it's a brutal film, but it comes from a very—it uh, it comes from a position where war is distant, where violence is distant. A filmmaker who doesn't hasn't lived through violence, who knows it personally, because you know Steven Spielberg is Jewish, and so his family obviously suffered the atrocities of war, but who has personally not encountered that kind of brutality. Whereas Del Toro, by his own just his own biography has encountered brutality and violence and terror and uh, you know, his own family's encounters with, with fascism and the evils of, of corrupt uh, society. And I think that shows. And I think that that's what makes this movie not exploitative. It doesn't revel in its gruesomeness. You're not supposed to be like cheering on for more gore, more gore. Like you want it to stop. And... Uh, and I think that's its strength. You want everything to stop. <laughs> and for just, you just, I don't know. But I give it a huge thumbs up. It's a beautiful movie. It gets a thumbs up. Every movie's gotten a thumbs up for me. What am I? It's a little trite, but uh, but like I, I, with our caveats, like don't watch it if you're of the kind, you're the kind of person. If you're weak of heart, don't watch this movie. Yeah. Um, before we end this episode, can I say something? Please do. Um, by the time people start putting their politics in front of children's lives and deaths, they become part of this problem. Because these are children. They do not deserve to die for any reason. And if you want to put your politics in front of their lives... You need to look yourself in the mirror and ask who the real monster is. I think that's very true. I'm Phil. And I'm Molly. And we'll see you next time when it's Del, Del Toro, Toro time. time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>